This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Aruka Network. In this episode, I speak with a consultant clinical psychologist who has dedicated his career to helping groups of people stay mentally and physically strong in difficult and stressful situations. In particular, He's been telling me the amazing way that our human bodies and in turn our communities can respond to kindness. These acts of kindness release this oxytocin, which in turn gives us that sense of happiness. And one of the other knock-on effects of oxytocin is it boosts our immune system. So it's not just a question of us smiling at somebody or us doing the right thing. It actually has benefits to us, which we can measure. These what we call pro-social behaviours are very, very important and benefit us and the community around us. That's the voice of Graham Fawcett. He is currently working as the Director of Psychosocial Services at Thrive Worldwide. And he has loads of experience supporting people living in stressful conditions, particularly humanitarian and aid workers. But he's also worked in community mental health in the UK's National Health Service. He's also been a visiting professor at different UK universities where he's talked about refugee trauma. He's been on the board of various groups working on crisis management and disaster relief. He's spoken as an expert on BBC News. And now, to cap it all off, he is a guest on this episode of How to Build Community. And in the interview you're about to hear, Graham shares with us some ways to be a strong team or community in a crisis. He talks about how hardship can give rise to empathy and kindness. He talks about why being kind to others is good for our health and how to generate more kindness in your community. And there's lots more besides, but I began by asking Graham, what's been the major motivation behind his career so far? The key theme uh, has been the, the mental health of people who are have a calling or a vocation to look after the physical or uh, mental health of others. Uh, so I'm very, very always being consumed by staff care, how, how to improve things for staff, how to make sure that they're all right. For me, it probably came to a head in Romania in 1990 when I was working there in orphanages. Uh, and do my best to help the Romanian government uh, close them down. But at the same time, there was a, a, really a, a tsunami almost of aid workers coming over to Romania to help out in that particular situation. And I noticed a lot of them becoming very, very stressed uh, and literally seeing 22-year-olds with stomach ulcers after a couple of months of working in quite intense and difficult situations and was curious as to about what was going on because it didn't make any sense that simply because they were under a lot of stress, they should provide these stress symptoms. And then got wind of the fact that a number of governments in Eastern Europe, quite responsibly, were beginning to identify particular agencies 
that were providing a disproportionate number of people with symptoms uh, and were considering blacklisting them from getting visas to come and work as aid workers in Eastern Europe at that time. And at that point, uh, really felt something must be done uh, and came back into Western Europe, to the UK, to do some work on how to prevent staff stress uh, in the first place, how to build resilience, and then more recently, how to build thriving and flourishing amongst people working in high-stress occupations. And you've worked with quite a diverse groups of people. Um, I know you've done community mental health work in East London, and so you talk about this work with aid workers, um, refugee trauma you've spoken about. And I've I've heard you mention before, I don't know if this was work that you did, but talking about how um, in the army in particular, um, teams are they're particularly kind of resilient culture um Mm -hmm. i i just wonder do all these different groups do we all respond to stress in the same in the same way we all respond to stress in one of three ways we tend to run away or fight or freeze um and in extreme situations faint um so that seems to be the way in which we are designed created to respond to stress and that that's very very adaptive um and we don't want to be thinking about it too much when the saber-toothed hyena basically or tiger is running towards us uh, you just need to react instinctively so we're all chemically and biologically um built in such a way that we respond to stress very very fast where things go wrong is where the stress goes on for a long time uh, and is not uh, something that goes away quite easily um, so long-term stress, long-term uh, problems in a refugee camp or on a long mission if you're in the military, um, uh, working into very, very difficult situations if you're an aid worker, long, long um, uh, careers in accident and emergency, etc. So all of these we know uh, leads to peculiar stress reactions because our stress system is really designed to switch on and switch off again very fast. Uh, It's a very rapid cycling system. So if it goes on and stays on for a long time, then we can be at greater um, risk of problems. The hassle, if I can go on to answer the sort of implied question, uh, do we all respond to stress in the same way broadly, although there are different kinds of reactions, is can stress be prevented from manifesting itself in much the same way? The answer there is very, very clear, but has been misunderstood for a long time. I think in the individualistic-centred West, we've tended to think that somehow if we can just build our own internal mechanisms, then we'll be a lot better. Um, So uh, relaxing more, breathing better, more mindfulness, etc., will undoubtedly benefit us, is the thought. The difficulty there is that it's then thought to be sufficient, that that's all you have to do in order to lead a stress-free life. And that's the bit where we have been missing a trick. We are social beings. We're designed, built to uh, live in social settings uh, with one another. And so the stuff that we can do individually inside our own minds probably accounts for about 10%, 9% of the reasons why we do and don't go on to get stressed in in due course. Um, A lot of the um, variance, a lot of the reason why we do or don't get stressed is actually to do with our social relations. And there there's two, possibly three key factors that are really important. The first is our ability to give and receive affection uh, with those around us in our team, in our family, in our social settings. And the other is the extent to which we experience something called a consultative leadership style. And that consultative leadership style, it's not a democracy, 
but it's the idea that our boss in some sense knows us as a person wants to get our opinion values our opinion it may still give us something daft to do but if we feel heard then that doesn't feel quite so restrictive or difficult and people in those situations do much much better in situations of high impact stress or long term stress uh, and then the uh, the third component but i think the jury's out on the impact of this is the extent to which we feel connected to a um an overall sense of duty or calling or vocation to the task that we're doing if we really really believe in doing healthcare then we will tend to do better than if we don't particularly believe in it so it makes those sorts of enterprises much better that that raises lots of different questions um <laughs> firstly why, why so so i've i've been doing this podcast now um the, this is maybe the 25th episode or something like this and it's amazing how often the importance of being listened to or or listening comes up um and you mentioned there being heard um as as a way to prevent you feeling feeling this stress why is that it speaks to a number of things. Um, our own agency, by which I mean I, that I'm, I'm seen as a human being, I'm seen as a person, I feel recognised, I feel honoured. Um, I think we have a saying now in parts of the English language, I see you, uh, which is more than just visually seeing somebody um, across a room. Uh, but we really understand one another. The other part of it speaks to control. Um, if we have a sense of being in control and being understood as a result of that, then we are more likely to accept the stressful situation or to go with the stressful situation that we're, um, we're experiencing. Um, and so that sense of control, uh, sense of predictability as well, um, is utterly crucial in damping down our sense of anxiety or, um, or stress in general. So being, being listened to, being heard gives us a sense of being being seen as a person, being appreciated as a person, being more than just a, a cog in a machine, if you like, um, and gives us a sense of being more in control. We're not utterly in charge, but we have a bit more control over our circumstances um, and life being a bit more predictable. So back in the day, we, we may remember that Volvo was one of the first car manufacturers to understand this particular aspect of us. And what they did was that rather than um, the half-built car coming to a person on a production line and then that person turning a bolt or tightening a screw or whatever. But actually a team of people went from one end of the production line to the other with the car and built the car from beginning to end as they went along the production line. And that led to much better staff morale, much lower sickness rates, much better product with fewer errors at the end because the people could vary what they were doing. They were in control of it. They had charge of it. And they felt heard. That's, that's amazing. I've not heard that story. Um, is, is it important then that, so, so somebody could be heard, but they're, what they're saying is, is not factored into decisions that are made by leadership. Do, does that matter? No, it doesn't. So long as the, you know, to uh, to be crass, if the if the leader wants to go north, and um, people are voicing strong opinions about no, let's go south. Providing they feel, sense, have evidence that their decision that they you know they they prefer to go south, south's a really good option. 
is taken on board by the leader and they still end up going north, they will still be satisfied. So long as they, as long as they feel consulted in the process, that's the important thing. Um, so one of the stories, and there's many of these come out of the military, but um, a squad of soldiers being told to go behind enemy lines and, and wreak havoc. And this was coming from a you know, very high up in the military command. And the very first thing that the officer, uh, non-commissioned officers, the NCOs and the privates did, was to go into a tent for three days and plan what they were going to do. And in that tent, but nowhere else, everybody had their own voice. Everybody got heard. Um, and it whether it's the private, whether it's the lieutenant, whether it's the, the sergeants, it didn't matter. Everybody's opinion mattered. Uh, and once everybody's opinion had been heard, then people could go on. Uh, they, they got on the helicopter and got on with their mission. It was a, a rip-roaring success. Um, similar kind of things within many, many uh, cultures around the world, the concept of a chief or a person in charge um, and the concept of um, palaver, the idea that you, everybody in the, in the community meeting uh, gets to be heard in front of the chief. And when everybody's voice is heard and has been heard, then at that point the chief can make a decision. So this, this thing of everybody's voice being heard is really important. It does not mean everybody will agree and it's not a democracy. It's more that everybody's opinion counts and is taken on board in making the final decision. Mm. Is there is there a, uh, I don't know if paradox is the right word, between us as people needing and wanting to feel heard and to have our say, but then also du- during a time of stress or emergency um, or anxiety actually craving someone who a a leader or whoever to take us by the hand and say look it's going to be okay follow me and do what i say Mm -hmm. is there a paradox there not really because there's there's often different parts of our brain are engaged in in extreme situations when we're under extreme stress then there's a particular part of our brain the threat system which will be dominant Uh, and that's a very simple-minded system It, it has one job only one job stay alive that's it it doesn't care what else is going on. Um, it doesn't care you know, what else is going on around it, so long as the, um, it's moving the body towards something that's a bit more secure. So simple, straightforward, direct um, um, uh, instructions or suggestions or commands at that point um, are really important. Um, fire exits, for example, they uh, are deliberately designed um, to be one colour, usually green, um, have an arrow on them, uh, and sometimes they have a word, but increasingly they don't even have a word. The brain can't accommodate an awful lot of information under extreme stress. Um, when the plane is about to crash, um, we all know the command that comes from the cockpit. And the command that comes from the cockpit is, ladies and gentlemen, we are about to crash. Would you please adopt the brace position? The command that comes from the cockpit is simply brace, brace, brace. So it, th- that part of the brain needs to be kept very, very, very simple. Um when we're thinking, strategizing, planning, even in stressful situations, um, there's less of that part of the brain involved. And so it can be an awful lot more um, uh, complex and creative about the ways in which we're thinking about how to solve a problem. We've not yet talked about the uh, the C word. Um, we're, we're in the midst of this 
uh, coronavirus pandemic at the time of having this conversation. Various things you've said so far, I wonder I wonder how they would play into this situation. The first thing, um, a little while ago, you talked about um, a Western kind of mindset of individualism and how in terms of protecting ourselves against the feelings of anxiety and stress that's only one small part the the communal aspect is is much more significant so would it would it be correct to therefore assume that the west is less equipped to remain resilient and strong in times of crisis um if very, very loosely speaking, the West maintains its approach of being very split up and atomized and so on, um, then possibly yes. Um, however, we're already seeing the stories coming out of um, Spain and, and Italy and uh, other locations as well, of communities gathering, even communities in quarantine gathering together. So we've got the, the lovely images of tambourines and musical instruments and, and community singing along a street each individual house is quarantined, but people can still be in contact with each other. And under times of stress, people will reach out to one another. Uh, even in uh, my local supermarket yesterday, um, when my wife and I just popped in to get one or two things and were met by huge crowds and great long queues, there was tremendous camaraderie and humour within the queue with people offering to sell us their position in the queue for a small sum of money or um, give over you know, the contents of their bag. Or, you know, if we gave her the contents of our bag, that they'd give up the contents of their bag because ours looked a bit more valuable. That sort of silliness was going on. I was conscious in the supermarket it wouldn't take much for it to tip into something a bit more sinister. But at the same time, um, in that particular supermarket in the south of England, that was the most conversation I'd had with people in several years of going into that uh, that supermarket. So this communitarian aspect will out in, in all societies. We do in situations of stress, we do need one another. Um, no matter how much we've been socialised, we, we still crave that connection with each other. It, it it makes me think, so a, a previous interviewee on this podcast runs a uh, community mental health program in the Gaza Strip, and now that's a part of the world that's experienced a lot of conflict. And he would talk about, obviously, a lot of the trauma that people experience and the, the terrible impact of that on people's lives but um there's also this trend of post-traumatic growth um and of growing as as people and as a as a community through adversity is is that i guess on a on a much lower level is that something you've seen i mean is that something is that kind of what you're describing there and have you seen that trend throughout your career Absolutely. Uh, so this is the work of Tadeshi and Kaloon, um, who kicked it off in the 1990s um, in the States. Um, but it, it certainly has been defined much better now as a, as a very, very um, uh, a phenomenon that does actually occur. It tends to happen after a trauma has subsided. So that might be a long term trauma, uh, like a civil war or the Gaza Strip. It might be an individual trauma like a car crash. Uh, it might be um, a um, a different sort of trauma, so a, a divorce or the or the death of a loved one, but nevertheless something which profoundly impacts our life. And uh, I, I think this this idea has taken hold um, perhaps more in the West than elsewhere that trauma, tra a traumatic event, inevitably leads on to traumatization. It doesn't. 
um, in only a small number of cases does experiencing a trauma lead on to something that's problematic and needing a, a clinical attention. Uh, most of the trauma um, symptoms subside within about a month or so. Um, there are some people who will need extra help, and certainly during the uh, when I was part of the London bombings response uh, here in London in uh, 2005 and onwards, we saw a small number of people who did need extra help after their very, very terrible experiences. They were very much in the minority, and there was usually a reason for that that was beyond what they'd actually experienced on the tubes or the bus. Um, what we see about in the roughly the 10-year period after the trauma is a transformation. It's not a it, post-traumatic growth is it, it, it's a, it's an okay term, but it doesn't quite get after how profound this change is. It's more of a transformation in the person where they become in a sense, much more connected to the world around them. In English, we call it the stopping and smelling the roses phenomenon. So many of us are busy in our lives. We go from A to B as fast as possible and efficiently as possible and stop. Don't think to just stop and look at what's going on around us. People become more compassionate. They become more empathic. There's much more the sense of there, but by the grace of God, go I. So the bad things can happen to anybody and bad things happen to good people. And I understand the position that you're in and you're able to empathize in a way which perhaps um, was only academic prior to the trauma. And unbelievably, um, even in the last week or so, I've been interviewing candidates for various organizations and want to join these organizations with the most eye-wateringly difficult stories of childhood uh, abuse or childhood neglect, childhood difficulties. Um, and then going on to um, have other experiences which were equally problematic as they were growing up, and have come through all of those experiences with a greater resilience and with clear, clear indications of post-traumatic growth, the idea that they are more connected to the world around them, more empathic and so on and so forth. And startlingly, this is not, you know, I almost hesitate to report this on their behalf because it is so precious, but they give thanks for the trauma because they say without that experience, they wouldn't be the people they are today. Wow. And th and that, what we've just talked about there is the long-term impact um, mm -hmm. and when you're able to look back. What about in, in, in amongst a, um, not necessarily a traumatic time, but a stressful and an anxious time? You wrote a blog uh, recently about, it was called Managing Scary Thoughts in Scary Times, I think, about mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. coronavirus outbreak and in it you talked about kindness and the importance of kindness and the uh, its health benefits mm -hmm. on, a, on a on a on the level of our immune system but then also socially i w i wonder because i i think perhaps some people would see kindness as something oh it's nice to be kind but it almost seemed like you were saying kindness is just incredibly important mm -hmm. it, it was a, it's it's something that's yeah, fundamental importance. Is that is that the would that be the correct way to characterise it? Do you think? Absolutely. That that's definitely getting after it. <clears throat> um, I don't want to get too technical on a pod podcast, but there's some really really lovely chemicals that go flying around our brain, and one of them is called oxytocin. It's the happiness chemical. It's the one that gives us a sense of joy and joie de vivre and happiness and enjoyment and thrills and all those sorts of things, <clears throat> um, and that's innovated by a number of different things um being touched touching somebody else saying hello somebody smiling at us us smiling at somebody else and these acts of kindness uh release this oxytocin 
which in turn gives us that sense of happiness. And the oxytocin stays around for a little while in our bodies. And one of the other knock-on effects of oxytocin is it boosts our immune system. So it's not just a question of us smiling at somebody or um, us doing the right thing. It actually has benefits to our, to us which we can measure under the microscope or if we took a blood test. So these are tr these what we call pro-social behaviours are very very important uh, and benefit us and the community around us. Um, this is, again, to be crass. If you smile at somebody, they'll almost certainly smile back. If you smile at a number of people, they'll almost certainly smile back. In a sense, you're, you're spreading a bit of oxytocin. You're spreading the happiness around the, uh, the community that you're in. The um, distressed people in my supermarket yesterday, they were spreading a bit of happiness. They were instinctively going to try and just make the place a bit better, a bit more funny, get a bit of a laugh going, even though they were feeling very stressed and panic buying all their toilet paper, etc. Uh, and in doing that, they began to feel a little less anxious and a little less stressed uh, at the environment they're finding themselves in at the moment. And the, the way you've described that, it, it almost sounds like it's infectious, like we're, we're you know, <clears throat> the coronavirus is infectious, but the, these acts of kindness can be, um, can be infectious as well. Absolutely, they really can. Um, so they, they, they do have a, you know, if, if our act of kindness is like a vector, then that can uh, have an impact on a multitude of other people. There's a lovely thing that's going on at the moment in the in the UK, uh, which is again is spreading in a kind of viral way because of somebody's um, Twitter. Um, but <coughs> some people down in southwest England, I think actually down in Cornwall, uh, came up with the idea of sending uh, just posting postcards through neighbours' doors uh, over the weekend, just saying very simply, "We're here." If you need any, any shopping doing or any prescriptions um, purchased, um, we'll do it for you for free. Here's our number. Give us a ring. And they just posted it to a number of neighbours around their, their immediate neighbourhood. Uh, and, and that idea itself has gone viral on Twitter uh, as a really, really lovely pro-social kind thing to do in a neighbourhood, uh, which then boosts camaraderie and neighbourliness. People listening to this who, who, who might be fearful of the coronavirus but perhaps there's there's other things weighing on people's mind whether it be climate change or perhaps conflicts um, in whatever part of the world they're in what take-home tips would you like people to um uh well to take home um, from <laughs> from this interview so the, the the big tip that's going around at the moment about coronavirus, which is there on all the mental health um, platforms, even on the WHO, um, is consume the news in small quantities. The um, uh, the, the news uh, or media in general um, is designed to get our attention very fast and scare us. That That's basically what it's there for. And then at the end of every single news broadcast, there might be a funny item, you know, dog, dog stuck up tree kind of item just to uh, lighten the load a bit. This is not the way to be consuming noise about a chronic problem like coronavirus. I mean, coronavirus is going to be with us for some while yet, and we cannot live at this level of stress all that time. This is not like reporting on an earthquake or reporting on a, uh, a car crash on a motorway somewhere. Uh, it's, you know, it happens, it's over, we can move on. This is going to be with us for some while. So the key piece of advice is consume the news that helps you to decide what you're going to do. And then apart from that, switch it off and only go to news outlets that you, you absolutely trust. WHO, uh, government, if you trust them, particular news outlets, if you trust them, uh, but don't dwell there. 
And then the other two bits of advice um, are to do with what we call rumination. It's the extent to which we think over and over and over about difficult things. If you're thinking over and over and over about difficult things, my son might die, over and over and over, my wife might die, over and over and over, my husband might die, over and over and over, what about the grandparents? After about five or ten minutes of that, you're going to end up being pretty miserable, but actually nothing has happened. All that's happened is that your thoughts have gone spinning in your mind. If as a result of that thinking you're going to change your behaviour, maybe think twice about visiting grandparents or who it is that your children play with and so on, then that's been helpful. But there's no point spinning the thoughts on until that moment where you're putting them in a grave. Uh, you're not actually putting them in a grave. You're just having that thought in your mind, but have managed to upset yourself in the process. So it's key to just regulate, though, downregulate uh, that, that particular thinking style uh, and to find other ways of, of being with people. And then finally, talking with, reaching out to, speaking with other people, really crucial. Not the people who are just going to upset you even more with yet more bad news, but people who you can talk to about, be silly with, have some fun with, uh, take your mind off things uh, and uh, get a sense of perspective with. Those are brilliant tips. Just finally as well, you talked earlier about how we as humans feel the need for some degree of control and then when there is a a such a huge global issue whether it be coronavirus or whatever it might be that seems so far beyond our control what what's what's the best way to exert that need for control in a healthy way so it's control what you can control, um, and it, that's often in the small things. So the huge benefit, for example, in the coronavirus uh, outbreak that we have at the moment, the most potent piece of physical advice that we can give out is wash your hands for 20 seconds. Now, this has managed to grow into something a bit more, into a bit of a meme, which is beyond the simple mechanics of washing your hands. Do you wash your hands to the Lord's Prayer? Do you wash your hands to Happy Birthday twice? Do you wash your hands to... There's a whole industry that's grown up on uh, Twitter and um, YouTube and so on and so forth on songs you can wash your hands to, which is just fun. That gives a sense of control. Just the very fact that you're standing, you know, somewhere in your bathroom, washing your hands will give a sense of control um, and that you are beating this thing. Choosing when to go out, choosing how to go out, choosing where to go out. Uh, these are also important choices. Um, and making choices around how to communicate with people. Do you send them a text or do you bite the bullet, pick up the phone and actually talk to them? We've got quite rubbish at using phones recently. And I think it's possibly time that we, we restored that and maybe even get a li little bit more braver uh, and use things like Skype or WhatsApp or uh, other devices uh, for video links as well. Don't take up much bandwidth, aren't that expensive, but they're far more potent than simply sending somebody a text and then getting misunderstood and getting into a bit of a text war uh, over absolutely nothing. So those, those are probably the top tips. It's, it's getting control or regaining a sense, sense of control in the small things. Will you fix climate change by next Tuesday? No. Will we fix coronavirus by next Tuesday? No. Will you feel a bit better because you're choosing when and how to wash your hands and when and how to go out? Absolutely. Anything you can do uh, will help you. That's fantastic, Graeme. Um, I don't have any more questions. Is there anything you'd like to add? The, the key thing is that we, we can make up much more horror in our own heads than what is actually going on in the world around us. 
Uh, and if we pay careful attention to what we're letting into our heads, are we seeing the, the nice things going on around us, the, the, the nice sunshine that we have going on in England at the moment, rare though that is? Are we appreciative of that? Or are we only th- seeing the terrible things going on? Um, are we only thinking about the um, bad things that are happening to our neighbours and our um, uh, neighbouring countries? Or are we thinking about the positive things that are going on? Yes, we have to think about the negative because we want to stay alive and we want to keep going. But that's a strategic decision. If we dwell on the negative, then we'll end up feeling very, very negative as well. This isn't about positive thinking and just thinking happy thoughts all the time so it will all be okay. It may well not be okay, but there's no point to feeling miserable just simply because of things that are going on in our head. Uh, We can do better than that. I will ask just one last question. You, you, you told me before this interview you've had a, you've had a quite a busy day. I wonder how you'll be uh, relaxing this evening. <laughs> My busy day continues into the evening, but when I do eventually get there, I've got a, a couple of things to do now, and then I'm going off to help a local community mental health team uh, in the NHS. They're figuring out how to reach out to their patients when they become quarantined, and many of them have difficult lives as well, which means that their immune systems aren't working very well. And then I'm going to come home and I'm going to sit uh, with my wife and I might just pick up the phone to a couple of friends and I'm going to watch some really, really, really stupid TV. I am not watching, you know, the um, apocalyptic Armageddon type stuff on TV (laughs) at the moment. We've just abandoned that. There's enough going on for real. So we're, we're down to stupid TV and just make, watching something that will make us laugh uh, and then going to bed on time and having a good night's sleep. Brilliant. Graham Fawcett, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. That was the voice of Graham Fawcett, the director of psychosocial services at Thrive Worldwide. And that's almost it for this episode. Before we go, I will remind you that you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community Aruka Network. And Aruka, that's spelt A-R-U-K-A-H. You can help support this show by making a small monthly donation on our Patreon page. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. You can learn more about us on our website, just visit arukanetwork.org. And finally, if you have some feedback on this show or suggestions for future interviewees, then you can reach me via email jake at arukanetwork.org. But that's it from me. Until next time, bye for now.